electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, a mega move at Meta. COO Sheryl Sandberg stepping down after 14 years on the job, saying it is time to write the next chapter of her life. Her next move and the impact on the stock straight ahead. Plus, from storm clouds that might blow over to a full-fledged hurricane on the horizon, how in just over a week did Jamie Dimon go from saying the economy remains strong to now believing we need to brace ourselves for a big storm? And later, Amazon's stealth turnaround, the e-commerce giant's massive move over just the last week. What is behind this nearly 20% rebound? Can it keep going? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Karen Feiderman, Bono and Eisen, Tim Seymour, and Steve Grasso. But first, breaking news at Meta. Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO, is stepping down. She's been the number two at Facebook since early 2008. Shares dropping as much as 4.5% on the news, bouncing back now um, in the after-hour session. CNBC's Julia Borson just spoke with Sandberg. She joins us with the very latest. Julia. That's right. Sheryl Sandberg telling me that the decision to leave now is because of her personal goals to focus on philanthropy and on helping women in particular. And she said that her departure is not because of the challenges the company is facing with slowing revenue growth or because of a beginning or end of an ads business or the company's metaverse focus. She said rather that, quote, if you want to make room for more in your life, you have to do it. She called the job the, quote, honor and privilege of her lifetime. But she said that this is not a job that she can do and also do other things. She stressed that she is staying on the company's board and she'll be at the company through the fall to oversee the transition. She told me that the timing, quote, has more to do with how much confidence I have in the team, saying, quote, I'm very optimistic about the future of the company. She also noted that the new COO of Meta, Javier Olivan, will have a very different job than she did. General counsel, policy, and HR will not report to him, but every different piece of the advertising business will report to him, which he says does make sense for Meta right now. Mark Zuckerberg saying in his Facebook post about Sandberg's departure that Olivan's role will be a much more traditional COO role, saying, quote, Javi will be focused internally and operationally, building on his strong track record of making our execution more efficient and rigorous. Zuckerberg saying, quote, Meta has reached the point for business, for, sorry, excuse me, for product and business groups to be more closely integrated. Um, so, Melissa, as we see the stock bounce back there, it seems like the fact that Sandberg is sticking around and also that there is this management transition, um, a little bit of a reorg uh, seems to be reassuring investors. Do you think Sandberg, I mean, it sounds like she, she didn't rule out working for another company because you got to wonder if she wants to be CEO of, of another company. She knew that she would probably never be CEO at Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg having the controlling interest. You know, maybe a media company, I don't know. So I asked say, her like about a Disney. That. I'll throw it out there. <laughs> well, Melissa, I did... I did ask her if, if she would be, would she consider running another company? Of course, she could also start another company. And she said, look, I'll never say never, never rule anything out definitively. But my plan right now is to very much just focus 
on the philanthropy. Um, she's, you know, spoke about focusing on women. Um, of course, she did create Lean In. She wrote that book. She has this organization with tens of thousands of Lean In chapters around the world. Her implication of why it's more important now to help women than ever, there was a little bit of an implication of the importance of Roe v. Wade being challenged. So maybe that's something that's top of mind for her as well. I mean, she has been involved in, in politics before, so perhaps she'll um, become more of a vocal advocate ahead of the midterms this fall. All right. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Certainly that was the, the talk when she first released Lean In back in, what, 2016 or so. Uh, Karen, I want to get your, your take on this. I mean, we do want to take and we, we do take Sheryl Sandberg's word at face value. But in terms of timing for the company, this is on the cusp of an advertising slowdown. This is as the, the company still struggles with regulators on how to police misinformation on the platform. There are a whole a, a swirl of, of issues over the company, not to mention the stock price. Yeah, although the company has been mired in swirls for several <laughs> years now, right? So that's what they do. They swirl around. So I don't know that she could wait for the, you know, the perfect swirlless moment. But I mean, to me, I have always thought that for Sheryl Sandberg, there is something bigger, much bigger in her future than Facebook. As a shareholder, I, I don't love the sort of grown up uh, in the office leaving, but uh, I think that she is staying for a little while. She will be on the board. Hopefully there's enough talent there to fill in. I think it's been interesting the last few months and the last maybe one or two scandals that she's been less visible. And to me, I always thought she wanted to protect her image because I believe one day she will run for president. And I think that she wants to sort of um, desensitize, I don't know if that's the right word, the sort of close affiliation with Facebook, which we know is somewhat controversial in many, many circles. And I think she can do a lot for women. I think there was a chance, maybe, if Hillary Clinton were elected, maybe she would have gone to the Treasury. We know she started her career with Larry Summers when he was at the Treasury. I think she's tremendously talented. And I think this, I, I, I think those aspirations are bigger than running another company. So I'm very intrigued. I don't, I don't know that it would be in the next two years, but I believe there is a run there somewhere. So I, I agree. The three things I would emphasize are she, yes, she's been a champion of women in IT. So not just women in the workplace, but women in the IT sector. Um, she clearly has been the public face of controversies. And, and whether that's fair or not, um, it, it's part of why, you know, I, do I believe this is for personal reasons? Probably. Um, do I believe the company's in transition? We know they are. Um, and if you think about, she was most responsible uh, for a, a strategy that I think was a culture of grow quickly and fix problems later. And, and I think in Facebook's case, that led to privacy issues and content moderation issues and things that were not necessarily her fault. I'm just saying in terms of the strategy of Facebook, uh, and we've gone back and we've looked at and Facebook has grown up during a time when social media has grown up in time. They've created the environment. And so, uh, you know, I'm not saying everything has had to change. And Facebook has learned sometimes some very difficult lessons as social media has evolved. Now their headwinds are 
iOS changes, um, TikTok, uh, a dynamic where cyclically, you know, ad pullback maybe. Uh, you're getting to a place where, frankly, I think the company has very interesting and easy comps. Uh, the valuation is absurdly cheap. If they do 14 bucks a share next year, which is not a stretch, um, you put a 20 multiple on it. This is a $280 stock easily. Um, but I think this is a company where there's still a lot of challenges in terms of ESG, public perception. Uh, and they clearly themselves are pivoting on their core business model because they believe that it has to change. And the market punishes the stock for that. A lot of the problems that Facebook faces currently, to Tim's point today, um, were byproducts of growth at all costs. Yeah. It was a startup yeah. culture and she was the adult in the room. And so, you know, to Karen's point as well, you know, you have to start thinking about how closely she will be. I mean, do you remember the Instagram controversy with the, uh, the study about young girls and how it impacts them? Does she want to be affiliated with that when she's trying to help women around the world? These are all questions that she had, you know, I would think that she wants to answer for herself before she moves on to the next chapter. So here she is. This, this seems like a smart move from her perspective. For Facebook, though, Bonoin, does this matter? With the stock of this valuation down 43% this year, does it really not matter because it's so cheap? I think it matters. Um, clearly, it's been de-risked. The stock price itself, I mean, the movement that we've seen, it's de-risked it a lot. Um, but you mentioned that previous Instagram scandal and the effect that it was having on young women. I think she is actually the perfect person to combat that and to stand up and kind of be a champion for the company. <clears throat> I think it's a massive win for her. But I don't think, I think the stock price is telling you, I don't think investors view this necessarily positively. Um, moving on from her, essentially when you're going through all this transition, you want part of the old guard that's been battle tested that can bring you through to the other side. I just think it's an interesting time being that there are so many things in flux to lose someone of her caliber. Um, before we get to Grass, I do want to bring in Gene Munster of Loop Ventures to quickly uh, get his take here. You've heard us sort of bat it around the desk, Gene, and I'm wondering what your initial take is here. You framed it in appropriately. I think all the risks and the dynamics that they're going through, I think the one piece that has been missing from the conversation is the reason why the stock is uh, still uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap is they have a global reach, 2 billion uh, daily active users. So there's call it 7.5, 8 billion people in the world. 2 billion of those visit a Facebook property daily. That was up 4% year over year last quarter. And I think that piece, that's the real substance of here. Cheryl leaving, uh, you know, we can get into the reasons. At the end of the day, I, I will go back to a text that I got from uh, somebody who I know inside of Facebook, and their comment was, his comment was, this is Zuck's company. If he left, that's a big deal, no doubt about that. And I think that's the core here. So, uh, Melissa, my sense here is that, uh, yes, there's turmoil in the near term. This is negative in the near term. Uh, this company is going to have to navigate the, the macro headwinds around advertising and all the other issues that your panel has astutely framed in here. But one thing isn't going to change. People are addicted to their products. There's, that's global reach, and advertisers are going to be back. Yeah. Steve Grasso, what's your take, having heard Gene's two cents? Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's actually down around a technical level in the stock. Around 180 is where, where support is. But where Karen started saying that it's headwind after headwind, that's true. The problem is since September 2021, the stock has gone down where in the past, headwind after headwind was rewarded with higher stock prices. So something's changed. We know what's changed. Fundamentals have changed. This is a negative no matter how you slice it. Now, she could be leaving for personal reasons. The market's going to see it as a negative. Mark Zuckerberg 
I don't think he knows what the metaverse is. It said, he said it's going to take 10 years to be profitable. I don't think Sheryl Sandberg knows what the metaverse is. And I think that's why she's leaving. She doesn't want the headwinds. She doesn't see a future for the metaverse. Gene, uh, you're a big metaverse believer, or you were once. Do you, are you still? I still am. I appreciate Steve's view. I do agree that the metaverse is yet to be defined. And I come back to an unfortunate, uh, I think, reality of human behavior is uh, human behavior gravitates to easy experiences and, and, and uh, enticing experiences. And I think that's why you, you see social, you see TikTok taking off. And ultimately, the metaverse, I think, is going to be an even more uh, inviting uh, for our, our time spent. And so, yes, Melissa, I am a believer in the metaverse. No, I cannot define what the metaverse is exactly going to look like beyond it's going to take up more of our time. And I think that, uh, you know, despite uh, my issues around uh, what it is doing, I think, mentally to all of us, I think that this, uh, uh, I think Facebook meta will benefit from whatever that metaverse looks like five, ten years down the road. All right, Gene, thanks for your your take. Appreciate it. Gene Monster Loop Ventures. I'll go back to you. I mean, it's fascinating that the company has rebranded itself to Meta, and not even Gene Monster follows the company so closely can define what the metaverse is, but is confident that in five to ten years it will be the leader and will benefit from the metaverse. So, Karen, how are you thinking as an investor when you take a look at the core business, which is strong because advertisers will stick around, but it does have its issues, its headwinds. And then you take a look at at the path the company is plotting towards the future to something that not many people... I'm going to venture to say no one really, maybe except for Mark Zuckerberg, can truly define, let alone how to monetize it. And that is the end goal. I mean, how do you think about this company? So I think about Zuckerberg in the past having faced these sort of, you know, existential threats or changes to the business. We've seen it a few times now. And, you know, we always talk about he did it with mobile uh, when that was an existential threat. And it seemed like they couldn't figure out how to do it. And yet they did. And, you know, we've seen him face various challenges. I don't know what the metaverse is going to look like, but I think he deserves the sort of benefit of the doubt to spend the money to try to figure it out. Right. I mean, just think about how forward thinking he was when he bought Instagram. I kind of thought, wow, that was seemed like a lot of money. I don't really get it. It ended up working out all right, far better than all right. So I feel like if you want to bet on the metaverse, I think he's a reasonable way to do it, particularly when you've got that money machine attached to it that already exists. So uh, I like it here. I don't know what the metaverse is going to be. And if it's a giant bust, all right, we will all lose money from here. Let's uh, switch gears here. Talk about an about face from Jamie Dimon. It was just nine days ago. The J.P. Morgan CEO sparked a major market rally, saying storm clouds overhanging the markets may dissipate and accelerating his expectations for meeting financial targets. Flash forward to today, and he's singing what seems to be a very different tune. He now says we should, quote unquote, brace for a hurricane as the risks from the Fed's planned quantitative tightening and the ongoing war in Ukraine intensify. So what's changed in nine days? That could so change the message that is perceived coming from Jamie Dimon, Tim. I think the message is one where you're at an investor day for J.P. Morgan and you're asked to assess, you know, a lot of different portions of your business, including the macro. And, you know, 
Jamie Dimon is not a meteorologist, but he seems to be evoking all kinds of weather metaphors because back then he says he saw storm clouds dissipating. Uh, and today we've referred to hurricanes and whatnot, and it's hurricane season. So um, that has people concerned. And, I, you know, I, again, I, the, the, the Greek god of Janus, who was the, the two-headed um, you know, God who saw backwards and forwards and, you know, what's he doing here? I I think the context of the conversation is still very different. Um, He's here to talk about today how J.P. Morgan also is going to be in a position where we're going to be conservative. We're going to protect our balance sheet during periods of of difficulty. We are going to uh, play it conservatively. And I think um, that's probably why ultimately financials, which traded down earlier in the day, there were comments from Wells Fargo CEO about loan moderation. People suddenly thought, banks, everything we thought about the recession coming, and this is what we're concerned about. Banks ultimately had a chance to get back off of those lows, and I think some moderation around these comments. It is, you know, it's concerning the headlines are easy to make because Jamie Dimon is someone we all listen to, Um, and he has his finger on the pulse of the economy and credit, um, but I think there was a context of understanding why these comments were made today. Yeah, and um, Mike Santoli made a very good point, as he often does, on the overtime show, Mm. Uh, and that is that all these measures that J.P. Morgan is taking in terms of being conservative with its balance sheet seem to be uh, preventive as opposed to predictive, Steve. And Jamie actually said, you know, he cited different categories that the hurricane could be. So he's not saying it's the worst, but he did throw out there that it could be a superstorm, Sandy. So how do you take how do you take these? They do seem scarier than they were, you know, a week ago. Yeah, well, to your point, he did he did give, you know, a a bad hurricane, not so bad hurricane. So for, for him, he did temper it on his own. I'll go back to CEOs are cheerleaders for their stock. But if they do the cheerleading at an extended pace with headwinds, they lose credibility. So if you lose credibility, then you're not going to be one of the most revered voices in the financial community. That's what I think happened. So in a nutshell, you're seeing his stock bounce. Maybe some, he he talked about quantitative tightening. Quantitative tightening is going to double in September. That's a massive headwind. I think he's worried about recession. As you know, so am I. And I think he wants to talk reasonably. Mr. Recession. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> listen, I think it isn't about face. I will say that I think anytime Jamie Dimon speaks, and Karen has mentioned this several times, people are going to listen. And he's well aware of that as well. He understands the audience that he reaches. Um, I think J.P. Morgan historically has always been more conservative. You think through the GFC and the exposure to the mortgage crisis, things of that nature. So I, I think it is kind of uh, true to character for them to lean on the on the conservative side. But I do think he's also making a point that perhaps people are underestimating the extent and the effect of QT. All the discussion is around rates. It's as if QT has kind of been moved off to the left. To the left. And the last time we went through this, we did go through this whole taper tantrum situation. Guess so. what started today? Yeah. QT. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this, this today it, it begins. So and I agree with you totally, Bonnie. Not enough attention on this <clears throat> and the impact. And in fact, if you think about the asset bubble that's been inflated uh, and the bubble that the Fed was targeting, um, it higher excuse me, lowering interest rates as we've seen have not done it. The, the four phases of QT that have started you know, under the Bernanke era all the way through are the ones that really have been the ones that have increased both the stock market and the housing market. So. All right. So on the occasion of the start of QT, a momentous day for this economy. Let's bring in. CNBC senior economic reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, we also got, of course, the Beige Book today, and that told us a lot about what different regions are seeing. But um, the QT effect, that's something that you have talked about. We we talk about 
the impact rising rates have on the consumer, certainly that's clear. QT will also have an impact. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's interesting. Um, you've had, a, a, I don't know, about 13, uh, 18 minutes into this show, and you haven't even talked about what happened to the two-year today. It, it rose by nine basis points. You guys have, and, and the market has almost started to internalize or normalize the volatility out there in the market. And, and that really comes from, you know, the question you asked about Jamie Dimon, you know, what changed in the last nine days? What changed in the last nine minutes? You know, you could you could make a case at any particular time that this economy is headed inexorably for a recession uh, because the Fed is tightening. And then you could sort of turn around and say, you know what, maybe we're going to make it through this. And you could really feel that looking at data all day. Today, the Beige Book gave us a little hint, maybe that some of the uh, 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 heat is coming out of the wage market, maybe some of the heat out of the inflation market. There was some talk about pushback on prices from consumers, some sense that uh, maybe employers are finding a little bit of uh, 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 love when it comes to hiring workers and not necessarily having to raise wages quite so much. Just a hint, not necessarily like it was all over. There's still a worker shortage. There's still huge inflation problems out there. Um, but, you know, and then I also talked to Mary Daly and I asked her, hey, um, are you going to go to 4% or 5% on rates? And, and well, here's what she said. I absolutely am open to pulling the reins back on the economy after we've removed the accommodation, but it's too early in my judgment to proclaim that we're going to do one thing or another because we still have other things that are unfolding. And I'll just add this thought. Yeah, it's too early for her, but not too early for the market. The market has to price that in every day. So, uh, you know, today the market priced in a little bit more. Tomorrow, who knows, maybe a little bit less. Um, Steve, you talked about the impact of QT being the equivalent of of how many points of tightening? Uh, well, some uh, Daly said 25 to 50. Others have said as much as 100 basis points of tightening. Wow. OK, we got to remember that one. Uh, Steve, good to speak with but you. Thank you. Just one more. Just yeah. one, oh, one yeah. more thing. The key, the key, the key, Melissa, I'm sorry, is the volatility. That's really where quantitative tightening has an impact. It's this up and down with rates, up and down with markets. Very quickly, I just want to leave you with one quick chart, which is the chance of 50 basis points. Look at it. It's 97, 95 for June and July, but then it drops down to 69. That possibility of the 50 for September was 30 percent last week. So we're going up and down on this next 50 between 25 and 50. So you just put 25 base points back in the market. You're taking it out last week. It's the kind of volatility that comes with QT and what the Fed is doing now and those varying emotions around whether there'll be a recession or not. All right, Steve, thank you. Thanks for giving us that chart too, Steve Leesman. My first reaction when I saw the, the um, probability go down is that something really bad is going to happen in the economy. <laughs> the Fed's going to back off, but that's just me glass half empty. Debbie Downer on this side, Tim. Well, it, it, we have a couple things going on. First of all, we also got some manufacturing numbers today that were very robust. Um, we've had, like, I think some of the regional Fed surveys as data points are incredibly volatile. Um, you do have a case here, though. If you've listened to some of the Fed speakers and you've even listened to the ex-New York Fed, who's given some insight into what the Fed might really be thinking, Peter Bookfar comes on our show all the time, wrote a great article this morning talking about the opinion piece uh, that had been written by Dudley saying, uh, you, yeah, you think the neutral rate's 2.4%. But that's when the Fed um, has inflation at 2% and unemployment at 4%. Um, it's not even close to that right now. So their neutral rate may be significantly higher. And I think that's part of what we need to worry about. But the short end, Steve talked about, big, big move. 
All right, coming up, Prime for gain. Shares of Amazon adding to an impressive run for the e-commerce giant. So will this trade keep delivering? More on that ahead. But first, losing altitude. The Jets ETF dropping as airline stocks sink into the red. So is this trade still worth boarding? We'll break it down when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Chewy surging in the after hours. The online pet product retailer reporting better than expected sales and a surprise profit for the quarter. The call kicked off at the top of the hour. Christina Parsonevelis is listening in. Christina. Yeah, and so it's all about the surprise right now because the online pet food retailer, like you said, is surging. And that's because they posted a small profit. The street was expecting a loss. The conference call underway, like you mentioned. Have it right now on mute. The CEO highlighted its insurance program and how there is still much potential for this segment to grow. For Chewy's earnings, though, much like other retailers, Chewy's still facing higher shipping costs, higher labor costs, and that caused margins to fall slightly. The company CEO was actually just on CNBC in the past hour, and he pointed out inflation, still a concern in 2022, and that consumer spending will, quote, ebb and flow as people spend on restaurants or travel, aka away from physical pet goods to services. And speaking of pets, Take a look at this graph from a recent Piper Sandler survey that shows that the pet adoption rate has actually dropped to its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. On the stock front, though, we just according to facts that 22 percent of the company's float is shorted. So we could be seeing some covering. Nonetheless, the company beat expectations, grew active ads by about four percent and the stock is surging in after hours. Melissa. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsnevelis. Steve Grasso, I hear you own this. Yeah, this has been a disappointing stock. It's obviously been lumped in with a growth stock where profitability was seen out, uh, was not seen uh, until out to 2024 or 2025, depending on who you speak with. But when you look at the pet adoption that we've had and, and uh, since the pandemic began, people have to feed their pets. And even if that pet adoption rate has gone back to a certain level, they still own those, all those pets. So I think they got lumped into a growth stock, and maybe people will change that narrative going forward. I can tell you, if uh, I don't have any pets, but any around my house with food prices where they are, they might starve as out. Oh, you're going to get in trouble (laughs) on Twitter, buddy. They're coming after you. Um, uh, Jokes aside, so we were just kind of doing a little game of over-under on the short interest on Chewy, and it was mentioned uh, on a few of the previous slides. I think this 
is poster child for the dangers of leaning into shorts in this type of market. So, you know, you have a situation where you did get the surprise. It looks to me like it's a rush to cover there. Uh, Steve, you know, summed it up very well in terms of what the expectations were in terms of profitability. And when you saw a pivot there, I think you're seeing people rush to cover that. I mean, up 22% in the aftermarket, I think that pretty much sums it up. All right, check out our move of the day. The Jets airline ETF falling over 3%, even as Delta raised its sales forecast to pre-pandemic levels. Listen to what CEO Ed Bastian said earlier today on CNN. Demand is phenomenally strong, and the guidance that we provided this morning indicated that in the current second quarter that we're in, we expect our revenues to be fully restored to where they were in the June quarter of 2019, despite the fact that we're only going to have about 82% of our available seats for sale during that same market. But are airlines having trouble taking off amid soaring jet fuel costs and sky-high ticket prices? Um, Karen, it feels like the opposite of what we saw when Jamie Dimon first had the positive words about the economy, about storm clouds dissipating and such. And we saw, we saw a huge reaction to the upside when it came to some of these discretionary names like travel stocks. And here we are on the other side of it. Right. I think, you know, they're facing costs like everybody else. But I think you brought up the point a number of times about are we sort of Um, you know, capturing all of this travel that really won't be recurring. And so it's sort of a bubble of travel. And I think maybe there maybe that is the case. But one thing I always come back to in these airlines is, you know, they talk about being back to where they were pre pandemic. But the balance sheet is very, very different. They have twice as much debt as they did. So maybe the revenues are there. They could probably price higher. Maybe they had opportunities to cut costs permanently during the pandemic. But the balance sheet is is wildly different. There's so much more debt. So the enterprise value is the same to me when I think the balance sheet is different. So uh, I've I missed a huge run up and somewhat of a run down, but I, I don't own them. So Karen's been saying this for a long time and she's been dead on. She's talked about the enterprise value moving higher. And if the earnings stay the same, the stock actually can look um, you know, cheap on, on certain multiples and really not be. But Delta is different. And Delta didn't have to raise dilutive equity. In fact, they were very outspoken. And at times it politically seemed like they weren't pulling in favor of pilots and other folks that they wanted to keep uh, employed. And they were actually a little bit more active than others. And if you listen to Ed Bastian, again, he talks about a company that's intrinsically more profitable than it was in 2019. If you look at the stock, um, to me, has traded in this range from you know 40 to 45, near the bottom end of that range here, with all this good news. And I like I realize that there's been revenge travel, or whatever we're calling this revenge, everything. But they've also talked about a return to the front of the bus. They've talked about international, the most profitable parts of their business. Uh, the business travel coming back on. I don't think that's revenge. I think that's the world normalizing. And, and I look at this stock, and I say this all the time: airlines are great trading stocks. This is a great place to trade Delta from the long side. I am long. All right, we are just. Getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Amazon on a tear. The e-commerce giant surging over the last few sessions. So is this trade prime to keep delivering? The details ahead. Plus, retail roundup. Shares of Capri getting a boost on strong earnings. But will other retailers check out with the same results? The traders are giving this one a try on. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Amazon topping the tape today, adding another 1.2%. The stock has been on a tear recently, rising in the last five sessions. And since hitting a more than two-year low last Tuesday, it is up a whopping 18%. That is a gain of nearly $200 billion in market cap in just over a week. Tim, i got to go to you on this one. Well, they made a lot of investments during the pandemic, and this is a company that's made a lot of investments in their infrastructure and their ERP and logistics in the last 15 years, and they've been rewarded for it. I assume they're going to be rewarded for this, but when they gave guidance on that Q1 and they said 7% growth and the outlook wasn't so great, you know, for a growth company with a big multiple, we know what's happened. 2000 looks like a great level and a great floor for the stock. I'm not sure you're chasing it here, Um, even though I'm long Amazon and I've talked about it. I talked about it yesterday. And this move um, is heroic. And I think this is the kind of move you're getting from mega cap tech stocks. I think you're going to get other ones like this. I think you can own Amazon at these levels. You can be an investor. But I think traders probably want to lay back for their next opportunity. Steve? Yeah, I actually bought it on the dip. I bought it specifically for Tim laid out a good picture of the fundamentals. I bought it just for the split. So I thought the stock came down from twenty nine hundred all the way down to, to almost $2,000. So I bought it off that, off that uh, sell-off. I'm going to ride it right into the split. Just think about 20 for one. All these retail investors, now I know you could own fractional shares, yada, 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 but all these retail investors and, 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 and the like are going to buy this thing after the split as well. So I'm going to actually stay along a little bit after the split. Does that still work? I mean, we've seen it um, when markets were directionally going higher and and now in a different environment. You know, do we say that that little trick sort of it doesn't work anymore, Karen? Maybe the retail investor is not necessarily there anymore to trade the options, be more involved in the stock. Right. Well, that wouldn't be surprising if some of the retail investors have left, though. But I think we'll get a good sense of it when we start when it does, in fact, split and we see the option trading and we see if that that part of the story, which I kind of believe is true, that these smaller lots will allow for option traders and retail that never could have owned it before. So I think we'll see it here. All right. Coming up, we are counting down to the big jobs report on Friday, what the data will tell us about the Fed's fight on inflation. The details ahead. But first, shares of Capri higher on the back of strong results. So should you add the stock to your shopping cart? We'll take a dip into the options pits to find out. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Capri Holdings finishing in the green today after posting better than expected quarterly numbers. The stock was all over the map in today's session, even dipping to the red at one point. Grasso, you own this one? Yeah, I still own it. They beat on on both the the top and bottom line, and they actually bought back another 3% uh, in buybacks in the last three months. They're quietly 
uh, taking this company private through buybacks. They're nervous about, uh, obviously, they've been a hit with COVID, zero COVID policy in China. That's one of the headwinds. They played a conservative. I'm looking for a hybrid multiple. They're not getting any, any multiple at all. They trade it basically seven times. Karen, Karen can, uh, can uh, check that, confirm that. I, if you look at LVMH, they trade it 23 times. They have a champagne business. That champagne business has a low multiple. So they should be, LVMH should be trading higher. But if you look at a product trading at 35 times or Hermes tra- trading at 42 times, this stock should be a triple. I'm staying long. It gets lumped in with regular retail. This is high-end retail. Wait, who has a champagne business? LVMH it- also okay. has a, a champagne business that's in, involved in it, too. So they get a, a blended multiple that drags down their luxury multiple. You learn something new every day. Wow. All right. Uh, let's get to Lululemon. It's going to report results tomorrow after the bell. Option traders are betting on a major move when those numbers cross the wire. Tony joins us with the action. Hey, Tony. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, that's exactly right. With earnings, Lululemon options traded very actively today, nearly three times the average daily volume. And because of the wreckage we've seen out of retail stocks recently, options prices have been bid up substantially going into the event. The options market are currently implying a 9.3% move on this particular uh, uh, earnings event versus the average we've seen over the past eight quarters of only 5.8%, so nearly double. And one trader is taking advantage of this elevated implied volatility and selling it, selling 400 contracts of the June 215 360 strangle, collecting about $3.14. That's a really wide strangle here because this is a, a strategy that will be profitable as long as Lululemon is somewhere between 212 and 363. That's about a 25% trading range around where the current price it closed today. So really taking into account the big moves we've seen in retail and trying to bet that we're not going to see that from Lululemon tomorrow. Tony, thank you. Tony Zhang for more options action. Tune into the full show. That is Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, all eyes on Friday's jobs report and what the data could say about the Fed's fight against inflation. You'll hear from a former portfolio manager with Peter Thiel on why Powell is getting it all wrong. The details and Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets anxiously awaiting the May jobs report out Friday, which could give us insight on where the Fed stands on its policy and how strong economic growth is. Our next guest is decidedly not optimistic about what we could hear, saying even a broken clock is right twice a day, unless that clock is the Federal Reserve. Hmm. Simplify Asset Management Chief Strategist Mike Green joins us now. Mike, great to have you with us. Um, So, you sound pretty down on the Fed right now. What are your concerns? I mean, that I was reading through the notes I thought was really interesting. That's the notion of zombie companies. And we talked about that on the show a couple of years back, um, even before the pandemic. But now this seems to be a, a, an issue that would come back to the fore with rates rising. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think you have two separate issues. One is, is that the Federal Reserve is basically been backed into a corner where it's perceived as being having, you know, having to do something. It got the transitory inflation narrative wrong last year, or more accurately, I would say that they didn't describe it well, convinced people that it was basically a two to three months phenomenon as compared to a two to three year phenomenon as we worked the difficulty through the system of the supply chains being disrupted. And what we're looking at today is a system that requires investment and higher interest rates do the exact opposite. So instead of investments in infrastructure to improve our ports, instead of investments in inventory, instead of investments in onshoring production, we're being forced to divest. 
And that's the world that we're creating under the Federal Reserve's policy. Hmm. Um, you say roughly 25 percent of the Russell 3000 are zombie. So yeah, how do you in, view how that impacts the rest of the market? Yeah, so well, it actually is a relatively small percentage of the market cap of, of the Russell two, the Russell 3000, right? So the Russell 3000 is about $43 trillion in market capitalization. The total market capitalization of the roughly 700 zombie companies in the Russell 3000 are somewhere around $1.7 so roughly three-fifths the total market cap of Apple Computer. Um, the problem is, is that they employ 16 times as many people. And so what we're talking about doing is taking companies that are incapable of maintaining their operations without refinancing, and we've shut down their access to financing. As these companies encounter increasing distress, we're already beginning to hear stories of even the largest companies beginning to encounter difficulties in their labor, where Amazon has announced that they've overexpanded, for example. That doesn't begin to compare to the challenges that many of these companies that are unprofitable um, or unable to service their debt are facing as we enter the, the this new regime of higher interest rates. So you are, it sounds like you're investing for a re recession scenario. You think a recession, a strong recession is likely at this point. So what does your portfolio look like? I see that, that for instance, you don't like these buy now, buy now, pay later stocks, which have already contracted quite a bit. Yeah, so, so within my portfolios, I just want to emphasize that Simplify is an ETF firm we launched in September 2020 to take advantage of a change in regulation that allows traditional exposures like U.S. equities, as you might see in the IVV or the SPY ETF, and adding the derivative overlays for downside protection or to augment income or returns We've grown rapidly from that point, but our portfolios are ultimately typically reflective of underlying market exposures with a derivative overlay. In terms of the portfolio that we're discussing today, we recently launched uh, FIG, which is a macro portfolio that combines many of the underlying exposures that we created in our ETFs. Um, the underlying exposure combines an equity exposure that we've accessed through a in-the-money long-dated put or call structure, I'm sorry, that allows us to have exposure to the S&P 500 while at the same time limiting that exposure. So roughly a 60% weighting to the S&P, but ultimately only about 8% of the portfolio is at risk under that structure. Okay, we are out of time, Mike, so I gotta leave it there. I'll get your thoughts on the firm another day, maybe. Mike Green, appreciate it. Mike Green Thank of Simplify. Thank you very much. All right, Bonowin, are these views too strong for your taste? They're strong. Um... Not too strong. I think he, he makes a lot of good points there. He also mentions the, the, the household expenditure on food and energy and how that should actually be looked like through a different prism. So I think, um, I think he makes a pretty compelling case. Um, me being an options guy, I do like the equity exposure through options, and they're deep in the money. So even if you get a spike in volatility, which Leesman and everybody else has kind of said that, that that's, a, that's a real risk, uh, that's kind of dampened. So I, I think it's an intelligent approach. All right. Coming up, Elon's ultimatum, the Tesla CEO telling workers to get back in the office yeah. or find another job. The details on Musk's mandate ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Office or bust, Elon Musk reportedly telling Tesla employees that they should be in the office at least 40 hours a week or leave the company. The CEO saying staff can, quote, pretend to work somewhere else. While many companies are opening their offices back up, many like Twitter, Amazon, and Meta continue to offer the option to work from home. 
Karen, where do you stand on this? Well, it's interesting. I mean, maybe there is such a cachet to working at Tesla that um, they'll do it. But, uh, you know, in the hunt for talent now, I think that's got to be kind of a big thing if you don't have to work in the office. So it'd be interesting to see if they actually lose employees over it. Yeah, I mean, I think Karen makes a good point. My thing is, like, this is just the wrong reason to be in the headlines. Why? You have a situation where you have all these companies that are perceived as being innovative and and advancing and and progressive in terms of their thinking. And they're saying, listen, we're willing to accommodate the best and the brightest. And we and this is a small give that we can that we can have unless you can point to productivity and tell me that it's down. I just don't see the reason. I think building cars, though, don't I mean, don't people need to be around to build the cars? I mean, it's one thing to be working for a tech company. I mean, you're working for a manu. And I realize that's not, I mean, there's, there's a lot of robotics involved in this and that. But um, the dynamic at Tesla to me is different than the dynamic at Google. Um, also explains why he wanted to get you know, out of California and into Texas and into places where I, I think the labor markets are, are, are stratified differently. Uh, and I would say that certainly the labor market in California, especially when where tech lives and breathes, um, is, is a lot more challenging to, to push people to get into the office. Yeah. Steve, what, what do you make of this? I think every generation, first of all, you, you could throw, you know, darts at this generation saying they don't want to work, period. They, they, they don't want to work in an office. They want to work remote. But this is across all generations. Anecdotally, I, I've had guys uh, and girls that are in on Wall Street that are looking for jobs that I'll say, hey, let me help you shop around your resume. And they say to me, it has to be remote. This is a life-changing event for everyone. The pandemic has made everyone want to work the most flexible and remote capabilities that they can. I I agree with Tim. There's going to be some corporations that you can work home and some that you just can't. Well, the balance of power right now is in favor of the worker. When that tilts because the labor market changes... Then we'll we'll revisit this conversation. Yeah, and we'll, 3% we will see exactly. Sure. We'll see how many people are saying only remote. Um, up, up next, we got your final trades. Final trade time, Grasso. Amazon. As I said before, I'm going to play this one into and after the split, and we're going to see how this experiment works out. Chairwoman. Yes, on the heels of that, I like Google for the exact same reason. We'll see Monday how Amazon trades. It'll be a month. I know it seems like forever from now, but a month later, we will see how Google trades, and I think it will trade up on the split. Bono and Eisen. Uh, all, these, all this discussion about commodities, and seemingly this one has kind of been just tossed to the side. GLD, gold. Tim Seymour. Let's go Delta. And Ed Bastian, you know, one of the issues for airlines over the last couple of days has been costs around fuel and whatnot. I think the chasm, again, that's cost for airlines, something people worry about, is better than people think. I think they have pricing power. Cost per available seat, seat miles. Mile. Chasm. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with the one and only Jim Cramer starts right now. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.